power of God that you feel in this place today. We're going to be reading uh, Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verses, verse 25 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 33. This is speaking of the spies that returned to spy out the promised land. <coughs> says, and they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us and surely it floweth with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. Sounds pretty good. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which came of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. And today I want to preach to you from this thought the land that eats people the land that eats people couldn't think of anything great for killing or anything so I went with Pac-Man but we're going to talk about the land that eats people today I want us to pray that the Lord would have his way in our hearts and lives today Lord Jesus we come before you thankful to be here today thankful for your presence for your power that we feel in this place and Lord now as your word comes forth I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear what you have to say to us today God Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, that you would challenge us in our spirits today, God. And we give you praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The land that eats people. Israel is finally, you may be seated. <laughs> Israel is finally on the doorstep of their promised land in these verses, these, this passage that we read. From the time of the promise of a promised land first came to Abraham until this moment has been somewhere between 500 to 700 years. That's a long time in coming. For generations of Israelites, this had been the whispered hope among themselves. During famines, wanderings, during slavery, this is the hope that had kept them going. That one day, sometime, we will enter into a promised land. We will enter into a place that God has told us about. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what we have to look forward to. I'm sure stories have been told. I'm sure many questions have been asked and many minds lost to daydreaming as thousands of Israelites had come up with their own ideas of what the promised land would be like. Just as today there's much speculation about what heaven will entail. Will it be a thousand year fishing trip? Will we worship God forever? What exactly will heaven entail? I'm sure they thought just the same about the promised land. Kids may have thought, I don't really like milk. I wonder if it has candy flowing. 
Adults would have thought as they're uh, picking straw to make bricks in Egypt. I wonder what that land would be like. And they conjure up images thinking about that promised land despite where they are in that moment. And now they stand on the very doorstep of this 500 to 700 year promise is just about to come to pass. This land that they have talked about, dreamed about, and hoped for is now just literally a few steps away. And they have sent 12 spies into the land. God has told them to send men into the land to spy it out. And they have sent these 12 spies, one from every tribe, to see exactly the lay of the land, to see if this land is really what we have heard about, to inspect the inhabitants and the walls and see how well fortified the cities are. Estimates range, but the spies traveled somewhere. They were gone for 40 days, and they traveled anywhere from 100 to 300 miles throughout that land, scouting all of the land. And we pick up the story in the passage we read upon their return as they give their report to Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel. Now, notice the report that they give did not discount what had been promised before. They reported that the land they had been promised, the land flowing with milk and honey, really did have milk and honey flowing, meaning that it was a bountiful land. And they they even brought back product of the land, fruit of the land. And and it suggested it was great produce, whether it was large or, or it just looked real good. They brought back produce from the land as evidence of what the land was like. So they did not discount what was in the land. They did see some of what was in the land. But then we read, they go on to proclaim that the land had more than milk and honey, but that it also contained giants. Now the purpose of them being sent was to discover, was to discover what the land was like, as well as how to, be, to view how well fortified the cities were. And the spies bring back the report of giants living there. They bring back the report of a land that eats the inhabitants. They bring back a report of great walled cities. And at this point, I would like to give the spies credit. They get discredited for all kinds of stuff, but I want to put one thing to their credit. At least they were realistic. (laughs) They were realistic because you know what was in the land? Giants. Do you know what was in the land? Cities that were very well walled. Do you know what was in the land? All the ites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. There was all kinds of people. And so I want to give them credit that while they saw the good, they were realistic and saw the bad. But if I could preach against realism today, (laughs) I like to be realistic, but sometimes realism isn't exactly what we need. And this story gives us a few lessons, and I want to move quickly through this first part, but it gives us a few lessons. The first thing is that a promise, while divine, rarely comes without a fight. You see, Moses sent the the spies into the promised land and he told them, I want you to see how well fortified their cities are because Moses himself knew that this is a promise that's been almost 700 years in the making and yet I still know there's going to be a fight for the promises of God. I know that I might have to put in some work to see the promises come to pass. Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul is talking about Abraham and it says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And let me say, the fight that you may be having with the promise may not be a physical fight of giants and walled cities, but most likely it's a fight taking place on the inside. And I'll be very specific about where it's taking place. It's in your faith. The fight is in your faith, but be strong in your faith. 
The fight will come in your faith as the doubts begin to arise and say, God can't do it now. It's too late. It can't happen now. But I'm here to tell you, fight for the faith. Fight for the promises of God. Fight for the word that he gave to you. It may not be the enemy that makes you stumble but it may at his promises, but it may be your own doubt. It may be the situation that you can see. It may be the fact that you look at what God has said he's going to do, and then you look at the situation, and all of a sudden you get realistic about what's happening. Now, I'm not saying we should just be airy-fairy and not put any... Re- no, but sometimes we let realism overcome, and the doubts begin to assail. I'm here to say, you know what? They may look that way realistically, but my faith is still fighting. My faith is still saying it's possible. It can still happen. And so this morning, I'm rising up against my own doubt that proclaims to me what my situation looks like realistically. Realistically, it's time to start staggering. Realistically, it's time to start doubting. Realistically, it's time to start wondering. But it says something in Romans chapter 4. He says he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I tell you what, there's a connection between my strong faith and giving glory to God. When my doubts begin to arise, you know what I need to do? I need to be like Abraham and start giving God glory for the promises. Start praising him for the kids that aren't in church. Start praising him for my family that's not here. Start praising him for a ministry that hasn't come to pass. Start praising him for revival that I haven't seen yet. If I want strong faith, I need to give glory to God. I need to lift him up when my doubts begin to arise. I need to praise him in the tough times. You see, praise strengthens my own faith. (laughs) When I can come to church in the middle of everything looking realistically pretty bad and I begin to worship God, something happens inside of me. Something happens in my own faith. Otherwise, I would be staggering at the promises. But Abraham knew the secret and he worshiped God in the middle of everything. He worshiped God when it seemed like the promises were too far gone. He did not stagger, but he praised. And you may have staggered in this place today, but it's time to quit staggering and begin to praise and give glory to God. I know realistically what it's like, but I'm going to praise him despite what's taking place. Oh, let's give him praise right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. I might have to fight for my promise. The second thing this story tells me, closely related, is that you have to understand who you are before the fight begins. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. We could preach a whole message just about this. But uh, uh, you need to understand who you are before the fight begins. You see, the spies came back and what did they say? They said, we feel like grasshoppers in in comparison to the giants. They say, we feel, and and you know what? Let me just remind you, they were right. Realistically, they were right. When you stand next, I don't know if you've ever met a basketball player or someone who's really tall. And you, or maybe you've seen a picture of, it's, it's been going around, the tallest man and the, and the shortest lady standing together. She's like 20-something inches and he's eight foot tall. There's a pretty big difference. Realistically, he's a giant. Realistically, eight foot tall is pretty big. And so again, they get credit for being realistic. And they said, we feel like grasshoppers in size compared to these giants. But then they also added the assumption that they must have looked like grasshoppers in the side of the giants. They presumed to know how the giants saw them. 
not only did they see the giants and say, wow, they're really big, but they presumed to know that the giants were looking at them saying, look how small they are. But you need to understand who you are before the fight begins. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 30. This is before they're ready to enter the promised land the second time. It says, the Lord your God which goeth before you, he shall fight before you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You see, the first thing I need to remember is that I'm God's child. And if I'm God's child, then God is fighting for me. And this verse tells me I need to do something else. I need to remember what he's done before. I need to remember the giants that he's fought before in my life I need to reach back into my past and say you know what there was a giant of sickness and God conquered that there was a giant of provision and God provided there was a giant there and he fought for me then and he's gonna fight for me again I am so uncomfortable this morning I don't know what's going on but I feel like I've got my shirt on backwards maybe I do I'm not gonna change it right now just Anyway, God's going to fight for you. He says, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Don't forget what's passed before your eyes. But I want to remember this. Is, I want you to remember this too. The first statement says, the Lord your God will go before you. Don't forget God has to go in front. <laughs> You see, that's really where the problem ends. It starts when we go into the promised land, when we start experiencing what God has said he'll do in our life, we step our foot in first, and then we start saying, oh, this is pretty big. Oh, I don't know about this. I'm not sure if I can handle this. Well, you probably can't realistically, but here's what faith says. God can go before me. God can go before me, and when he goes before me, he'll fight the battles for me. Isaiah chapter 30 says it this way, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And you wouldn't. <laughs> Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me rest. No, that's not really what we want to do. This is what we do a lot in verse 16. But you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore shall ye flee. And we will ride upon the swift, therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. He said, no, here's what will happen. If you put me first, if you trust in me first, if you believe that I will fight your battles, you know what? In the middle of the battle, you'll have rest and salvation. You'll have quietness and confidence and strength. But no, you wouldn't do that. You said, no, I'm going to get on the horse. I'm going to figure out how to do this. I'm going to start fighting the battles. I'm going to start trying to figure this all out I got to remember that the Lord has to go before me now there's a difference between laziness and indifference and quietness and inconfidence I'm not just sitting back saying Lord it's all yours I'm just going to sit back here on the couch no but my confidence is knowing who I am when I enter the battle and understand who I am before the fight begins when I understand that I am more than a conqueror before the fight begins when I understand that I am a child of the king before the fight begins when I understand that greater as he that is in me than he that is in the world before the fight begins then I have quietness and confidence in the battle a promise rarely comes without a fight and I've got to understand who I am before the fight begins because if not realistically I'll be in trouble the other thing I want you to understand this morning that we find in these verses is that the promise may come gradually and not all at once I would love for everything to happen at once. Then you don't have to think about it. 
right? If you, if you just know what's going to happen, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to wonder about it. Think about all the time we, and, and effort we waste trying to figure things out about what's going to happen. If God would just do it all at once, that would be so much easier. I, I would love to have just a resounding victory the moment I pray. I would love to come to the altar and God speak and say, I'm going to do this in your life, and I stand up and it's done. I come to the altar saying, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. I'll be whatever you want. And God speaks to me and says, okay, I'm going to make you a race car driver. And I stand up and Formula One's on the phone. NASCAR's on the phone. Right? Sorry, is that? Maybe I'm the only one who comes to the altar to be a race car driver. <laughs> but I would love a resounding victory. You know why? Because I think that's the best way for it to happen. Just get it all taken care of at once. Just get it all done at once. That, that, to me, seems the best way. Then there's not all this wondering and worrying and what's going on. In Exodus chapter 23, though, this is the promise about what's going to happen when they enter the promised land. And God says, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. One year. We've entered the promised land, and one year later, there's still trouble going on. There's still things happening. I don't have complete victory one year later, but God says, little by little, I will drive them out. In Deuteronomy 7.22, again, as they're about to enter for the second time, God repeats this promise, and he says, and the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee little by little, that thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase over thee. You see, my problem is I get upset when it doesn't all happen at once. But let me remind you that God knows the land you're entering better than you do. It doesn't matter how many spies you've sent out. God knows the land better than you do. He knows what he has promised you. You don't have to remind him what he promised you. And here's the deal. He knows whether you can handle it all at once or not. You ever thought the reason why you're still going through it and it seems like you really haven't progressed a whole lot, it's just one foot in front of the other? It's because God knows all you can handle is one foot in front of the other. God's not just holding it back to frustrating you. He's holding it back so that you will succeed in the end. And you see, we get confused and we get frustrated and we get despondent because it's just one foot in front of the other. And God's saying, I'm going to give you this foot now. And now I'm going to give you this foot and this foot. And if I'd look behind me, I'd see all that God has done for me. But I just see one step in front of the other. But God says, I know the land. I know what's happening. I want you to succeed. And this is how the promise is going to come to pass. So I'm not going to get frustrated. It's not happening all at once the way I want it. No, they're not all saved at once the way I want it. But God's doing it. God's working. God's moving. Let me tell you, there's another purpose for why he does it little by little. In Judges chapter 3, this is, this is now they're in the promised land and they're going to split up the inheritance and go and, and, and have little battles throughout the whole nation. It says, now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as being knew nothing thereof. 
I want you to catch what God said. He said, you're in the promised land. I'm going to give you this land, but I'm not going to drive out every enemy. Hmm. I'm not going to drive out. And then it goes on to list. One of the nations he left was the Philistines. You ever heard of them in the scripture? You ever hear about all the battles? Do you know why they were still there? Not because Israel couldn't defeat them. They were there because God left them there. I wonder how many things in my life are still there, not just because I can't defeat them and not because God can't get rid of them, but God has left them there to teach me a lesson. God has left them in my life. If you want to be honest about it, some of the things that you wish God would take out of your life are the very things that are keeping you saved. Well, I wish God would just take all my anger. I wish God would just take this. I wish he would just take that. Why doesn't he take it all at once? Why can't I just come to the altar and my life just be entirely new? Because God knows that if he took it all from you, you wouldn't ever come to the altar again. And so God's left some enemies in your life. It's not that he can't defeat them. It's not any of that. But he wants to make sure that you succeed. You see, he cares about your salvation more than anything else. And if he's going to leave the Philistines in your life just so that you're saved, he'll do it. Because that means I have to get up and die every single day. That means I have to get up and pray about those things in my life. That means I have to get up and fight the battle every single day. You know, sometimes good times make us forget how to war. You know, I remember, I remember before we were in a war. I remember those days. It's been, what, 17 years now? We declared war in 2001 or 2002, and we're still in a battle. How many of you remember people that joined the army before that? Why'd they join the army? Some of them did, but I tell you, probably the vast majority of them went, went there so they could get a college education. I mean, for how many years did people join the military and it was an easy way to get a college education? Why? Because we're at peace. But I tell you what, something happened that day in 2001 and war was declared. Suddenly all those people that were there for a college education find themselves on the front line of a battle. Sometimes good times make us forget about war. And we're just cruising along and we're just living life and God allows something to come into our life. The Philistines start attacking. Things begin to happen. And God's done it so that you can remember how to fight the good fight. He's done it so you can get back on your knees. You see, crisis makes us pick up our weapons, but the good times very often makes us lay them down. And God wanted them to remember that although you are in the promised land, it's still a fight. You've still got to fight to serve God. You've still got to serve Him every day. You cannot lay down your weapons. You cannot become at ease. You cannot forget that there's an enemy seeking to steal, kill, and destroy from you. Sometimes He wants to leave things in my life because He wants me to keep the memory of how to fight in my life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about, he says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. That means I'm getting all kinds of stuff from God. 
I'm getting all kinds of revelations. Every time I go to pray, I'm seeing angels and revelations. But he said, lest I should be exalted. There was a thorn in the flesh given to me. The messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And he said, I had this thing that came against me. I wonder if that's why I had to die every day. He said, I sought the Lord and said, Lord, take it from me. Lord, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Take this pride. Take this anger. Whatever it was in his life. And he said, this is what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Who knows the very weakness that you're struggling with. The very battle that is raging in your life that you can't seem to get over. I wonder if God is not saying, let my grace step in. Let my grace step into your weakness. Trust in me. Rely in me. And you know what? If you put me first, I'll fight the battle for you. I'll do the work that you need. We struggle in the middle of promises being fulfilled. And Paul reminds us it's through his strength. You see, it's those weaknesses that remind me of how little power I really have. It's those weaknesses and those battles that remind me how great God is and how great his grace really is. Sometimes there's a reason God doesn't deliver me from everything. Sometimes he doesn't do everything at once, but little by little. It's because he wants to see us saved. Just because God isn't moving as fast as I think doesn't mean that you're not living in a promise. Just because it's not going the way that you thought and as fast as you thought does not mean you are not living in what God promised. Let me tell you this right now to this church. Just because revival doesn't happen in one fell swoop doesn't mean we're not in the middle of revival. (laughs) I don't know how you see revival. I don't know what goes in your mind when people get up and say this church is on the edge, this church is on the precipice, this church is this, and this church is that. I don't know what you see. I I know in my mind, I'm seeing like, I said it today in class, 50,000 people coming in and 90,000 getting the Holy Ghost. That's what I see. I see see church starting and people are still trying to find a seat in their line. I mean, I don't know what you see, revival. I I don't know how you see it happening. But I think a bunch of people coming, I think of all this happening, and I think, man, it's just going to... Ever seen those guys that do the, the, the wingsuits online, and they go to the edge of the cliff, and then they jump off, and they're... That's what it feels like to me in my mind. That's what revival's going to be like. Because we're on the cliff, and we're just standing there waiting, and all of a sudden, we just go flying down. What if revival comes little by little? Let me ask you this, if revival comes at once or little by little, which one's revival? It's all revival. It's all a promise. I wonder what would happen if we quit standing on the edge and start saying, you know what, we're walking in revival right now. I wonder what would happen if we would keep hoping for the future and hoping for what we think should happen and realize, you know what, that one step we took, that's another step of revival. That's another step of revival. This is no less a promise than everything happening at once. If someone gets baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost every single week, that's no different than 50 getting the Holy Ghost at one time. You know what, I believe we're in revival. I'm claiming revival. I believe that we are walking in something glorious and divine right now. 
And let me say this, I'm, thank, I'm looking forward to the day that everyone's kids come back. I'm praying for that day. I'm praying for the day your parent walks through the door when the person you've been witnessing to for 23 years walks through the door. But in the meantime, there's been 17 baptized this year. In the meantime, over 20 have got the Holy Ghost this year. You know what? That's revival. That's something happening. And I'm not going to discount the one step towards revival. I'm going to claim it and say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know what would happen if 200 walked through the door at one time and all got the Holy Ghost? I'd feel pretty good. I'd feel real good. You know what I might start thinking? God did that. Well, all that prayer. All that effort, all that work, whew, man, you know what? I think I just, I can take a break tomorrow. I, I think I can take a break tomorrow. I might start forgetting how to war. I might start forgetting the very things that brought me to this point, that brought this church to this point. I believe God is doing something right now, and we need to have the faith and confidence to say that God is not waiting, but God is doing right now. Whether it's over the course of years, or whether it's in the course of a week, it's no less miraculous, it's no less of a fulfillment, but I'm going to claim it in Jesus' name. Someone sped up my clock, I don't have much time left. Now we get to the land that eats people. Now we get to the land that eats people. You see, when they entered the promised land, the spies saw the fruitfulness of the land. They saw the milk and honey flowing. And those were the first words out of their mouth. Yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, there's, there's fruit, there's produce. But quickly they move on to the fact that there's giants and there's cities being so great. And then they mention there's like there's two arguments. They say, yeah, it's real good, but man, there's a lot of bad stuff. And then Caleb, he jumps up and says, no, we can do it, we can do it. And so they make a second argument. They say, oh, that's just Caleb. They say in their second argument, they, they, they said, if we go in this land, we are entering a land that's a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Now, if it just ate up the inhabitants, that'd be bad, but it eats up the inhabitants thereof. That's really bad. He said, this is a land that eats people up. That's kind of a little freaky phrase right there. It's a land that eats people up. They had been throughout the whole promised land and they had seen the fruitfulness, but they were being realistic because what they also saw was a people who were struggling to survive. They saw the fruitfulness of the land, but then they looked at the people and the people were barely making it. Yes, there were giants. Yes, they had walled cities. But in the middle of all, all that, the people seemed confused. There seemed to be distress. There seemed to be turmoil everywhere. One commentator suggested that there was funerals taking place throughout the whole land. And all they saw was death and destruction right next to the milk and honey. And they were scared because when they saw the people, despite what the land said, they saw people struggling to just make it every single day. They saw people starving. They saw the funerals. They saw disease. And this is why they said, this promised land is not really that great. In fact, it's a land that eats up its inhabitants. Really, the promised land... While it did possess some of what God had promised, it seemed really more like a land that was dying. It seemed like a land that was on its last legs. It seemed like a place that really no one 
would want to go. God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And instead they walk into a land where they can only catch glimpses of greatness, where they see what used to be. But it doesn't seem like a land that they want to be right now. It seems like a land on its deathbed, a barren place. The promised land, the promise was not something they wanted to enter into. The promised land was not how they had imagined it. Yes, there was some of it, but they didn't see death and destruction in the promised land. And, there, and when they had conjured up images, they didn't see disease and, and heartache and, and distress in the promised land. No, this was a place where everything was great. Everything was wonderful. If you wanted Florida, it was right here. If you wanted California, it was right here. If you wanted the Midwest and allergies, it was right there. Everything you wanted could want was right there. They entered it and they saw it and they came back and they knew it wasn't a place. They said, this is not a place we want to take our families into. This is not a place that we want to go into and say, this is our home. We do not want to settle here. It looked like a hard, harsh place. The benefits, the fruit, the milk and the honey did not seem to outweigh the destruction, the chaos and death they encountered. And the impression was so strong in 10 of their minds, that they were willing to forego the promises of God and convince others not to go in either. I want you to think about that. For five to seven hundred years, this has been the thing on their lips. And now they stand there, and the impression of the land that eats up the inhabitants is so strong and negative that they are ready to throw away 700 years of promise and convince almost two million people that this is not where you need to go. Because the land eats its inhabitants. And let me just say, there's times when the promise doesn't look like a promise. There's times that the promise doesn't feel like a promise. It's not that God is moving you forward step by step because that implies that there's positive. Just not as quick as you want, but it's at least positive. No, sometimes the promise seems even more distant than a footstep away. The problem they had was they had followed the fire and cloud by day and by night. They had been faithful. They had gone where God told them to go. They had come out of Egypt and they had been led to what they thought was the doorstep of something new. And there's people in this place that you have come out of Egypt, which is a type of sin in the world. And you have been led to the doorstep of what you thought was something new. And then you saw the promised land. Then instead of standing on the doorstep, you walk through the door. And you didn't like what you saw. Looks almost worse than where you were before. In fact, they begin to say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It definitely doesn't look good as my memories of Egypt are. Remember, they were memories of Egypt. They had forgotten what they did in Egypt. They just remembered some of the good things. They forgot that they were slaves, that they were under someone else's control, that they had no hope, that they had nothing while they were under sin. They had nothing. And yet they crave for those memories of Egypt. Never mind all of that. There just seems to be turmoil and confusion and despair and death all around. How could this be the promise? And there's people in this place that you've received the word of God. And yet you look at circumstances and situations now. And God has led you to this point in your ministry, in your family, at this church. And you think, how could this be the promise? Because it's nothing. In fact, it's the opposite of what I imagined. How could this be where God has led me? 
And since the cloud and fire have stopped, you decide to camp out on the edge of your promise because you're not about not following God. You still want to follow him. But it feels like it might be better to live on the edge of where God has led you rather than enter the promised land that's the opposite of what you thought. And you're camped out on the edge of the promise. But you see, the Israelites had forgotten something. Surprise, surprise. They had forgotten some of the promises of God. They had forgotten some of what God told them. They had remembered the land flowing with milk and honey, but they had forgotten some other things. You see, there was more to the promise that God had given. This part was given to the Israelites just before they went to the promised land, and then God speaks it to them again when they enter for the second time. In Exodus chapter 23, this is what it says. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. And then in Deuteronomy, it's similar. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them. For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. You see, here's what they had forgotten about the land that eats the inhabitants. Here's what they could not see. The land was not eating the inhabitants. God was making a way. (laughs) You see, what they took for destruction of the land was really God saying, I'm going to make a way for you where it seems impossible. Because God knew they couldn't fight the Hivite and the Jebusite and the Canaanite and all those people together. So God said, I'm going to come before you and I'm going to send my fear before you. And I'm going to send disease and pestilence and all those funerals, all that distress you see. It's got nothing to do with the promise. In fact, it's part of the promise that I'm going to put you where I said I was going to put you. And it's not the land that's eating you up. Don't be scared of the promise. It's me making a way for you. You see, we see the promise and think, man, there's no way that anything could happen now. That person's so far gone, there's no way God could do anything now. Look at the turmoil and mess and destruction at where I thought God was supposed to be working. Let me challenge you, maybe God is working. Maybe what you see is God doing something. And he's driving out what needs driven out. He's taking that person to the point they need to get to so the promise can come to pass. So don't lose hope at the land. The land won't eat you up. The land It's not going to destroy you. It's God making a way. It's God doing something in the situation. It's God changing the circumstance. You see, if we read Joshua's words in the very next chapter, Joshua and Caleb, they were the two that said, no, that's not what's happening. It's not a land that's eating the inhabitants. Joshua says in Numbers 14, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear. Only How can ten spies bring one report and two bring a completely different one? How can twelve people enter a land... Ten of them come back and say, there's no way. Ten of them come back and say, I know God led us here, but that can't be the promise. And then two of them say, no, that's exactly what God's doing. That's God working. All, all, we, we were there and we saw funerals everywhere. Man, that's the land we want to go to. That's the promised land. How's that happen? 
After Jesus feeds the 5,000, his disciples are unsure about everything that's taken place. And Jesus asks them these words. He says, having eyes to see, see ye not. It tells me it's possible to see, but not see. Realistically, it was a land in destruction. But I know God. God doesn't lead me to destruction. God doesn't lead me to a land that, in he, that eats the inhabitants. He leads me to the promised land. And because I know God, I don't see that for what it realistically is. No, I see God working in everything. It's possible to see, but not really see. All the spies saw the same thing. They didn't see anything different. But two of them returned with a different report. You see, the physical eyes cannot tell the difference. I've got to have knowledge of God, first of all. I've got to know who God is. You see, Joshua and Caleb knew who God was. I sounded wrong in my head. They knew who God was. They knew his character. They'd seen his glory. They'd seen him move. They'd come out of Egypt and seen all of that stuff happen. They knew who God was. And they knew that God does not operate by bringing us all the way and just like, like, like dangling a carrot in front of us, just bring us to the doorstep of a promise and then say, oh, got you. No. If God gives you a word, he's going to fulfill the word. Why? Because I know what he did in my life before. I look around and see testimonies all over that if God says it, he's going to bring it to pass. And so no matter what happens, I know that God is faithful and true to his word. He's committed to his word and his promises. His track record reminds me. And Joshua and Caleb knew. They reached back and grabbed a hold of God's track record and said, if he did it before, he'll do it now. If he brought the promises to pass before, he'll do it now. You see, God wants me to see that the land is not being destroyed, but being prepared for me. God wants his church to see that the land is not being destroyed, but being prepared. Maybe he's just giving it little by little, but it's God. It's still the promise. When I ask you, what do you see in your life today? Do you see a land that's eating up its inhabitants, including your promises? Whatever God has spoke to you, whether it's about your family or situations, do you see it getting worse and worse? Or do you see a land of promise that God is setting up for victory? My kid's never been farther from God. Well, what a testimony when they come back. God is setting it up for victory. Man, I've never needed provision more in my life than right now. Well, then it's going to be God if, you're, if he provides. If it comes through, it's going to be a victory that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's God. I want to challenge you this morning. Don't see a land that is being eaten up, that the inhabitants are being destroyed. No, you need to see it as God setting up his victory, setting up his glory, setting up his promises. In Isaiah 29, 18, it says, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. That's my prayer today. Lord, I want my eyes to see out of obscurity. I want to see out of the darkness. If I could put it, I want to quit seeing the realistic aspect of my situation, that this is what's really happening. I don't want to just ignore it and be blind. No, but I want to see with eyes of faith, see out of the darkness of what's, what the enemy would try and put and say, no, I'm seeing what I need to see. I'm seeing with faith. I'm not staggering.
at the promises. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I want my eyes enlightened this morning. I want to be able to see the promises of God in my life today as we stand this morning. We need blinded eyes to see today out of obscurity. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the eyes of our understanding opened today. If you could put 1 Corinthians 10, 26 up there. I don't have this in my PowerPoint. There's no Pac-Man for this one. But see, I want you to remember something today, and this is what I want you to see. Out of the darkness of your situation, out of, out of seeing all the chaos in front of you and wondering how could this be God, how could the promises, how could any of this be God's work? It looks like nothing. I want you to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 26, if you could put it up there. If you can't, then that's good. It says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I want to tell you, even if the land is eating up the inhabitants, you know whose land it is? It's God's. Even if the circumstance looks like it's going from bad to worse, you know who's in control of the circumstance? God is in control. The land is God's. So it doesn't matter how you see the land this morning. All you really need to see is the land is God's. Everything in the earth is His. The earth is the Lord's. And this morning, I just want to leave with this one thought. God, whatever's going on, I know it's in your hands. So I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to keep believing in the promises that you've given me. That the land is not destroying. But Lord, you are bringing victory to my life today. Why don't you lift your hands and praise him right now, Lord Jesus. Lord, we lift you up in this place right now, God. Lord, that you would speak to somebody's heart right now. Lord, maybe somebody's in the situation where you, you haven't done it all at once, but Lord, give them the faith to take the next step. That Lord, the promise is still coming to pass this morning. It may be one step at a time, but it's still your promise is coming to pass. Lord, that you would open somebody's eyes to see today beyond the circumstance, beyond the land that seems to be eating everything up and see, Lord, you are setting them up for victory. Lord, you're setting them up for something miraculous in their life. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Amen. This altar is open this morning. And it's open for those that feel like you might just about be ready to stagger. It's open up for those that maybe you came in this place staggering today. It's open up for those who feel like you're just about to fall. But I'm here to tell you, you cannot stagger at un with unbelief. But you must grab a hold of the promises of God one more time. And how do I increase my faith today that he's bringing victory, that he's bringing it to pass? I begin to glorify the Lord. I begin to praise the Lord. And I know it seems cliche to praise God in every situation, but that's what Abraham did, and it was good enough for him. That's what Abraham did, and God brought the promises to, to pass. So I'm not going to worry about the land. I'm not going to worry about how long. I'm not going to worry about whether he's going to be faithful know I know he's been faithful before I know he's been true to his word before and I'm gonna believe that he's bringing the victory to my life today 
And so this altar is not open to come and just weep and cry. This altar is open for you to worship God, to give Him glory in the middle of the situation. Maybe you've had the report, and maybe you think you entered this place and said, no, the land's being eaten up. No, I'm going to come and lift my hands in victory today and say, no, Lord, you're still on the throne. No, the Lord, the earth is still yours. The land is still yours. I trust and believe in you today. If you want to worship the Lord this morning, make your way to the altar today. If you need strength today, make your way to the altar today.